I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters— I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. Only for the grace of God, she's managed to make it to the shore and is uh, somehow found by the Baltimore County Police. I would say he's ruthless. It can become deadly given certain circumstances. He's got a family, he's got a girlfriend, he's got her. There had to be a strong motivation. You pay me up or else. It could be one of two things, total incompetence, or there can be an element of corruption. That will not be discussed in this house. He absolutely became furious at the mention of the Car Barn murder case. Welcome back to Shattered Souls, the Car Barn Murders. I'm your host, Karen Smith. This is episode nine. This podcast may contain graphic language and is not suitable for children. Previously on the Car Barn Murders. By early 1937, Montgomery County, Maryland State Attorney James Pugh and Capitol Transit President John Hanna had lost faith in the investigation and the detectives in charge. They attempted to secure two well-respected District of Columbia detectives to take over the car barn case, but their request was stonewalled by D.C. Superintendent of Police Major Ernest Brown. Brown told Pugh and Hanna that he needed permission from D.C. Commissioner Melvin Hazen prior to assigning his own investigators to the case. Despite Commissioner Hazen's approval, Major Brown said that the two requested detectives were too busy on a very secret and very important case and couldn't investigate the car barn murders. Using information from D.C. jail inmate Horace Davis, Detectives Volton and Rogers went to Baltimore in January of 1936, a year after the murders, and met with Lillian Janney, 
the wife of violent felon Robert Janney. He was serving eight years in the Maryland State Penitentiary for armed robbery. Lillian told Volton and Rogers that Robert Janney had bragged to her about being involved in the Mary Baker murder case, as well as another job in Chevy Chase, where he and several others had to shoot their way out, and he got $100 out of it. Lillian also said that one morning in January of 1935, Janney came home with wet pants and spent that whole day sitting around staring at the walls. Volton and Rogers went to Janney's place of employment and found the time cards in his own writing that proved Janney wasn't working on the night of the car barn murders. They drove Lillian to the prison to meet with Janney, using a strategy to elicit information from him. It worked. Janney turned pale when my uncle's murder case was mentioned, and he dropped the name James Moody. The ID Bureau had nothing under that name. The detectives made arrangements with the warden to intercept all of the mail coming into or out of the prison from Robert Janney, and a February 6, 1936 correspondence to Lillian showed that Janney was desperately trying to get information about their conversation and why the police were talking to his wife. From a photo array, Lillian Janney made a connection between Robert Janney and William Clark, one of the initial suspects in my uncle's case. William Clark waltzed into D.C. police headquarters on the day of the murders and inserted himself into the investigation. Lillian Janney also identified another photo as being William Clark's friend and alibi, James Weir. By January of 1936, William Clark was in the Maryland State Penitentiary with Robert Janney. How did that happen? Fasten your seatbelt. We're headed up a very steep roller coaster, and you've got the front seat. Trust me, it's a long way to the bottom. As I move forward, this story tends to get a bit complicated. So to start, here's some background. William Franklin Clark was born on August 24, 1909, in St. Mary's County, Maryland, just minutes prior to his twin brother, Joe. William Clark had two older sisters, Doretha and Helen, and two younger brothers. His father was a farmer, his mother was a homemaker. By the age of 17, William Clark dropped out of school and married Viola Ryder, who was four years his senior. By April of 1930, they had three children, and his marriage to Viola was rocky at best, and by the close of 1930, Clark had moved out and was living with his girlfriend, Mary Branch, at 1415 Girard Street in D.C. Viola was unable to work and raise three children by herself, so she moved in with William Clark's parents. Child support payments and alimony were not forthcoming. In 1930, William Clark was charged with grand larceny, but that case was dropped. Clark had been suspected in a number of robberies around the district, but for one reason or another, he was never charged. He was hired onto the Capital Transit Company as a conductor in September of 1934, and he worked for about a month at the Chevy Chase Lake Ticket Office with James Mitchell and Emory Smith, but his stint at Capital Transit was cut short. On October 14, 1934, D.C. Detective Robert Barrett 
arrested William Clark along with his friend, James Weir, for an armed robbery. Clark spent some time in jail, and it seemed like that jail time was a pre-detention hold for trial. There was no further information about the disposition of that robbery case, but by Christmas of 1934, Clark was out and living with Mary Branch on Girard Street. James Weir was back at his place a block away on Harvard Street. When William Clark strolled into police headquarters in D.C. on the day of the murders, he said he just happened to be in the area and heard that the detectives wanted to talk to him. William Clark was held in jail for three days, but his interview took less than an hour, which was impossible for me to reconcile. How did the detectives savvy the justification for such a long hold, yet conduct such a depthless interview? It didn't square. Nothing about this case did. William Clark's girlfriend, Mary Branch, and his buddy, James Weir, were also arrested. All three of them were questioned about the Carbarn case, very superficially, and each of them alibied the other, with no follow-up investigation relative to their claims about where they were that night. There were no notes for James Weir's interview included in the file that I received from Montgomery County. There was just a vague reference to a missing report by Baltimore Sergeant Stuart Deal. So I was left to work with only the notes from William Clark and Mary Branch's interviews, and I spent weeks poring through these documents, disarticulating the information, and scrutinizing every single word. Time well spent. In the middle of my investigation into Clark, James Weir, and Mary Branch, I came into a windfall of new case materials from a source. I received a cardboard box in the mail, and inside of it was a three-inch stack of files that I had never seen before. Onion skin papers with rusted paper clips holding the tattered edges, more interviews, notes, letters, information from new witnesses and completely unfamiliar names. Included in these new files were the typed reports by Baltimore Sergeant Stuart Deal, including the missing interview with James Weir. There were also additional notes for William Clark and Mary Branch, with more detailed information about exactly what they said during their interviews. I flipped the pages to find James Weir's interview first, but the only information about him was within these short sentences from the report by Baltimore Sergeant Stuart Deal. James Weir, 1411 Harvard Street, arrested for investigation on January 22nd. Weir made the same statement as Clark did in reference to his whereabouts Sunday night and Monday morning. We questioned him in reference to the murder and were unable to learn anything at all from him. That's it. That's the whole kit and caboodle on James Weir. Two sentences. Getting back to William Clark and Mary Branch. Now that I had this new paperwork, there were two different synopses for each of their interviews. The first were the handwritten notes from D.C. Detective Frank Brass. The second was the type version of those notes by Baltimore Sergeant Stuart Deal. I'm going to start with William Clark's handwritten interview from Frank Brass, and I'm going to read it verbatim so there's no misunderstanding within the questions or answers. Interview of William F. Clark, age 25. 1415 Gerard Street. My full name is William Franklin Clark. I'm 25 years old, and I live at 1415 Gerard Street. I live with Mrs. Mary Branch, the renter, 
It has two rooms, kitchen and bath. I've been keeping company with Mrs. Branch about five years. When did you start working at Capital Transit? September 1934. How long? About a month. During your time there, what trick were you on? Late straights. Any hours? Any time means what hours? Work from hours 5.40 p.m. to 1.36 a.m. Were you a conductor? Yes. You would be the one who turns in money? Sure, yes, sir. Who did you turn it into? Several men. A fellow named Moore, Mr. Mitchell, Mr. Gibbons. Did you ever work the 5.30 a.m. run? No, sir. Sometimes I'd catch an early straight at 7 a.m. Where were you living then? 1415 Gerard. Did you have a car back then? Yes, sir. Pontiac Coach, 1934. What color was it? Black. What tags? DC tags. Do you still own this car? I loaned it on the 3rd of this January to a friend, as I didn't have money to pay for tags. Who did you loan it to? Mr. Frank Schurman, 5501 Arabia Avenue, Baltimore, Maryland. Do you have anything to show that you did loan this Schurman this car? Sure, I have three or four witnesses and a man from General Motors, Mr. Bolton. Whose name was this car bought in? My father, John R. Clark. During your time at the car barn, who were the men you ran around with? Uh, Hussberger and Stanbaugh. Did you go to the racetrack with these fellows? Uh, Yes, sir. Also, Barnes. Do you know Ledman? Yes, sir. Don't you know a man named R.C. Childress? Can't say I do. This man lives on 26th Street Northwest? No, sir. When was the last time you were out to the Chevy Chase car barn? On Saturday. I went to Mr. Stevens and talked to him. He referred me to Mr. Kelly, attorney for the road, for advice to get my job back. Then I went out to the Chevy Chase barn to get my equipment together and talked to Mr. Gibbons in my father's car, a Ford sedan, at a barn man, a little short, chunky fellow. I don't remember his name. Where were you Sunday? I slept late till 12 noon and went to Mr. James Weir, 1411 Harvard Street. Jim asked me to wait. I waited. After I left and ate my dinner and went back about 7 p.m., I told his sister I was going to a show. What show? Gaiety. Who was with you? James Weir, Mrs. Branch, and myself. What time did you get out? About 11. What time did you get home? About 11.30. What time did you go to bed? About 12 midnight. Did you go out again that night? No, sir. Isn't it a fact that you did go out again last night with two other fellows? No, sir. I didn't leave the apartment until 1.15 today. Now, you've named several men out at the barn that you've worked with and turned money in? Yes, sir. Do you know a man named Gregory? Yes, sir. You failed to name him. Yes, sir. How long have you known him? Since I worked there. Did you ever talk to Mr. Smith? No, sir. Isn't it a fact that Mr. Smith, the so-called night watchman, is the same man that takes the cars into the barn? I can't say. What was the name of the motorman you worked the late shift with? Uh, Dyer, Joe Dyer. Don't you usually wear dark clothes? No. Yeah, except when I worked for the company. I wore their uniform pants for a while. About December 15, 1934, I saw you standing in front of Milton Kronheim's bond office, at which time you wore a dark overcoat, a derby, a dark suit. Your overcoat had a fur collar. No, I gave it away when I was in jail. At this time, you were with James Weir? 
Yes, sir. He was dressed in dark clothes. You say that you don't own dark clothes. Yes, sir. I haven't worn it for about a month. I took this suit on Saturday to Arkins Taylor's at 8th and F Street Northwest. The suit's still there. Three-piece. When was the last time you saw Weir in dark clothes? A few days ago. What tailor does he deal with? General Cleaning, 14th Street, about 2400 block Northwest. I got the clothes I now have on from the cleaner Saturday afternoon at about 7. Who can verify that? James Weir and Mrs. Branch. James has a half interest in the shingle shop, 1317 F Street Northwest, beauty parlor. Which room did you sleep in last night? Back bedroom. No use lying about it. That is the entire handwritten interview with William Clark, who was in custody for three days for investigation. I'm estimating that interview took way less than one hour. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. Baltimore Sergeant Stuart Deal's typewritten report had a few more details. Here it is. William F. Clark, age 25, 1415 Gerard Street, apartment 26. 
This man was arrested and held for about three days for investigation. Following is his statement. States that he has been living with Mary Branch at the above address for about five years, and he went to work for the Capital Transit Company September 1934 and worked for them for one month when he was arrested on a robbery charge October 14, 1934. Sometimes I would work a late straight from 5.40 p.m. to 1.36 a.m. as a conductor. Yes, I would turn in at the cash window. I've turned in to Mr. Moore, Mitchell, and Gibbons, who's the day man. And at that time, I was living at the same address and had a 1934 Pontiac coach, D.C. Tags. I loaned this car out January 3, 1935, to Frank Schuerman, 5501 Arabia Avenue, Baltimore, Maryland. I bought this car through the General Motors Finance Company, Washington, D.C., and I have witnesses that I've loaned the car to Shurman. I know Lebman because he broke me in, but I can't say that I know Childress. Friday, I was over to see Mr. Stevens and talked about getting a job, and he referred me to Mr. Kelly for legal advice. And Saturday evening, I went out to the Chevy Chase car barn and talked to Mr. Gibbons and the barn man. I don't know his name. Sunday, January 20th, I slept pretty late until about noon. I got up and went over to James Weir's home at 1411 Harvard Street, apartment number one, and went back home again. And about 7 p.m., I went over to Weir's house again, and James, Mrs. Branch, and I went to the Gaiety Theater. She bought a ticket for me, and he bought his own ticket. We got home about 11.30 p.m. and ate some chicken and went to bed about 12 midnight. No, I didn't go out anymore that night. We asked him quite a few questions at this point, and he finally said that he didn't leave the house until about 1.15 p.m. the next day. He denied that he was out in a car with anyone that morning. We're inclined to believe that Clark knows something about this job, but so far we've been unable to get anything to link him up. Clark could have been the finger man on this job. Statement continued. Yes, I know Gregory. I've known him ever since I worked for the car company. I don't think I knew Mr. Smith. Joe Dyer is the man I always worked late straights with. I haven't worn dark clothes since I left the car company. I have a blue suit, but it's too small for me. Didn't I see you on December 15th wearing a dark suit and overcoat? Yeah, I saw you too on that date, but I didn't have on dark clothes, but James Weir wears dark clothes. No, I haven't had any dark clothes to wear. I've been wearing light clothes for some time. I have my clothes cleaned at the General Cleaning Company, 2400 block of 14th Street. We asked him if he was sleeping with Mary Branch, and his answer was, Well, I don't have to tell you, just use your own mind. I won't say yes or no. James Weir works at the Shingle Shop, 1317 F Street Northwest. He has a half interest in that business. That woman gave it to him. I don't know why, but she gave it to him. Sergeant Deal's notes make it crystal clear that the cops believed that William Clark could have been the primary suspect on my Uncle Emery's and James Mitchell's murders, but they said they were unable to get anything to link him up. From my perspective as a detective, they didn't try very hard. In fact, they didn't try at all. This was mind-blowing information, and my job at that point became figuring out why the investigators not only suspected William Clark, but why they held him for three days and why nothing was ever done to put his ass behind bars. William Clark's girlfriend, Mary Branch, had a lot more to say during her interview, and she poked some pretty big holes in his alibi. <laughs> Let me rephrase that. Her statement obliterated his alibi. These are the verbatim handwritten notes by D.C. Detective Frank Brass. 
Interview with Mary Branch, January 22, 1935. My name is Mary Branch. Does Mr. Clark live with you? He did till about two weeks ago when he moved his clothes. Saturday night he came out to 1415 Gerard Street? About 7 p.m. He brought a suit? He had a suit cleaned and brought it here, a gray suit he had on, and a light suit that's hanging in the closet. What other color suits has he? His uniform he sold and a dark blue suit, but he sold it because it was too small for him. What kind of overcoat does he have? A light gray top coat and a heavy gray coat? Does he not at this time have a dark suit or overcoat? No, sir. I've never seen him in a dark suit or overcoat. What time did he leave on Sunday? Home practically all day. Got up about 12 noon and went to James Weir on Harvard Street, came back in about a half an hour and said a man was coming over for dinner and wanted to know if I had enough to eat. So he brought a man? Yes, blonde hair. You've seen him on other occasions? Yes, he and Clark sat there talking and the officer wanted a girlfriend to play cards. Clark left to get a cigar after the officer left. This was about 8.30 p.m., About 20 minutes later, he went to James Weir's and came back and said that James wanted to go to the Gaiety Theater and asked me to go. We went in a taxi to the theater. We got out about 11.30 and came home, and James went home. We came in my apartment, and Clark played with the cat for about an hour. We ate chicken and then went to bed, Clark in the bedroom and I on the Davenport. This was about 1.30 a.m. I saw him next about 7.30 a.m. when I called him and he got up. After breakfast, I gave him a dollar to get a car pass. The supposed officer had on what kind of clothes? A gray hat, blue suit, and I don't know what kind of overcoat. Before I go any further, there's a really important detail that I need to add here. When I received the case file, it included copies of these interviews, which were handwritten on line notebook paper, at the bottom of Mary Branch's interview on the first page. There was a deliberate accordion fold in the paper. This wasn't just a crumpled corner or something that would be expected from a really old file. This was deliberate, and it obscured two questions and answers given by Mary Branch. To make sure, I sent photos to a forensic document examiner, and she confirmed that the copy I received had been folded over on itself like an accordion. I have no idea how or when this happened, but I had to jump through a few hoops to get another copy sent to me without that fold. And when I received that email, it confirmed the trajectory of my investigation and it revealed something extraordinary. Here's how it reads with the fold in place. Question. So he brought a man? Answer. Yes. Blonde hair. Innocuous enough. But here's how it reads without that accordion fold. So he brought a man? Yes, sir. He was an officer. His name was Creek or Greek, and I believe he lives off Good Hope Road. How about his age? About 29 or 30. Tall, you say? Yes, blonde hair. An officer named Creek or Greek? What the hell does that mean? Was that the reason why that particular piece of Mary Branch's handwritten interview was hidden? And within the new paperwork I received, the typewritten report by Sergeant Stuart Deal revealed even more information. This was exactly how it read. Mary Branch, age 33, arrested January 22, 1415 Gerard Street. 
Clark did live with me, but he moved his clothes about two weeks ago. And Saturday about 7 p.m., Clark came to my apartment and went to the market with me, and he stopped at the cleaners and got his suit. Yes, Clark has a blue suit, but it's too small for him. He has a light gray top coat and an overcoat. I've never seen him with a dark, heavy overcoat. The blue uniform suit he has was sold to a car man, but I just can't remember his name. Clark was at my apartment all day on Sunday, January 20th, and he slept in my bedroom. He brought a man there for dinner. He's a police officer. His name sounds something like Creek, and he told me he lives on Good Hope Road. I saw him in uniform on 13th Street Southeast. He's about 29 years old, tall and slender, has blonde hair. He left about 7 p.m. and thanked me for the meal. So about 8.30 p.m., Clark went out and got a cigar and got James Weir and we went to the Gaiety Theater, which let out about 11 p.m. We got a cab and went straight home and I played with the cat for about an hour and we went to bed. I called Clark Monday morning and asked him if he wanted some breakfast and he said no. Then I went to work. I paid his way to the Gaiety and for the taxi. I've loaned him money and helped to pay on that car and I've even helped to feed him. Of course, he's been good to me. He's been in trouble for failing to pay alimony. The officer that was at my house on Sunday wore a blue suit, gray hat, but I can't remember the kind of overcoat he wore. At the bottom of Mary Branch's typewritten interview, there was a notation. Benny Johnson, 1400 Block Newton Street, is Clark's cousin. A police officer came to Mary Branch's apartment on the night before the murders. She confirmed it in Deal's notes. Who was this officer named Creek or Greek at 13th Street Southeast? Did anyone bother to ID this officer? Why was he at Clark and Branch's apartment the night before the car barn murders, just to have dinner? Why would William Clark bring a police officer home for dinner? He'd been arrested for an armed robbery just a couple of months prior. What the hell was this all about? Bookmark that thought. That's a wormhole we can't go down just quite yet. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to 
bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Let me break down these statements just a little further and put everything into a timeline so that you have the big picture. This does get a little sticky, and there are lots of details to take in, but I'm going to break it all up into bite-sized pieces as best I can. Saturday, January 19th, 1935, two days before the murders. That afternoon, William Clark went to the Chevy Chase Lake ticket office to get his change carrier from Mr. Gibbons, the daytime clerk. Clark mentioned that he had an appointment on Monday, January 21st with Mr. Stevens, the superintendent of transportation, to try to get his job back. I have a few investigative notes. First, Clark's comment about his change carrier. I don't think it was his change carrier. I believe it was the property of the Capital Transit Company, and here's why. My grandfather worked for Capital Transit for 40 years, and he did an interview in 1990 for a retrospective book titled Bethesda, A Social History by William Offutt. During my grandfather's interview, he talked a little bit about the car barn case, but his focus was on his time at Capital Transit and how the trolley system operated back in the 30s and 40s when he was a conductor. My grandfather said that the only item he kept from Capital Transit was his ticket punch, and he had to buy that with his own money. Everything else my grandfather used was the property of the company. So William Clark's statement about the change carrier doesn't hold water with me, and I seriously doubt that William Clark would have spent his own money on one when the company provided everything a conductor would need, including a change carrier. Second, William Clark went back to the Chevy Chase Lake ticket office again on Saturday night. Yeah, he went there twice that day. A man named Butler reported that he wondered why Clark didn't get his change carrier during the day, and one of the other conductors asked him why he didn't get it during his earlier visit. Clark said that Mr. Gibbons didn't know where it was. Why would William Clark make two trips across town for something as innocuous as a change carrier two days before a robbery and double murder. Third, if William Clark had an appointment on Monday, January 21st, with Mr. Stevens to get his job back, why didn't he keep his appointment instead of going to police headquarters to front-run street talk? He was desperate enough to pay two visits to Chevy Chase on Saturday to get a change carrier, so why not keep his appointment with Mr. Stevens on Monday to get his job back? During his half-assed interview, William Clark admitted to knowing James Mitchell, but he denied knowing my Uncle Emery. When Clark went to the Chevy Chase office on Saturday, he said he spoke with, quote, a barn man, a little short chunky fellow. I don't remember his name. Sound familiar? 
the only short, chunky barn man at Chevy Chase Lake was my Uncle Emery. William Clark denied knowing my uncle, but that statement tells me that he did. There were enormous discrepancies between the statements and timeline given by Mary Branch and William Clark, and those inconsistencies became my focus for weeks. William Clark said that he got up around noon on Sunday. He went to James Weir's house and waited. He went back to Weir's at 7 p.m. and told James Weir's sister that he was going to a show at the Gaiety Theater. He went to the Gaiety with Branch and Weir and got out at 11, got home at 11.30, and went to bed at midnight. He said he didn't leave the apartment until 1.15 on Monday afternoon. Mary Branch said they got up at noon on Sunday. That's where the similarities stop. She said that Clark went to James Weir's place and came back, telling Mary that an officer was coming over for dinner and wanted to make sure there was enough to eat. The police officer wanted a girlfriend to play cards. This was about 8.30 p.m. Twenty minutes later, Clark went to James Weir's house and said that James wanted to go to the Gaiety Theater. They took a taxi to the theater, which Mary paid for, along with William Clark's ticket. They got out at 11.30 and went home, and James Weir went back to his apartment. She said that Clark played with the cat for about an hour. They ate chicken and went to bed about 1.30 in the morning. Clark slept in the bedroom, and Mary slept on the Davenport. She next saw him around 7.30 when she called him and he got up, and she gave him a dollar to get a car pass. Now, there's a lot to break down, trust me, but it's not that complex once you understand some basic facts. Let's start with the first part of their alibi the Gaiety Theater. It was located at 513 9th Street Northwest. The Gaiety was a burlesque house, and according to newspaper ads from Sunday, January 20th, 1935, the matinee show featured The Dashing Debs and Joan Collette, but there's no mention of an evening show. It was a Sunday, and there may not have been a nighttime show, but let's give them the benefit of the doubt and say there was a show that night. The shows ran from 8.30 to 11. The theater was located about a 15-minute drive from Clark and Mary Branch's apartment on Girard Street. At a 10 to 15-minute wait for the taxi and a slow drive through the mush of traffic in the snow that night, and they would have arrived no earlier than 9.30, according to Mary Branch's alleged timeline, of Clark returning from Weir's house at 8.50. There's a one-and-a-half to two-hour discrepancy between their statements about what time they left a one-and-a-half-hour discrepancy about what time they went to bed. There's no mention from Clark about dinner with a police officer, a taxi ride to the show, playing with the cat when he got home, or the car pass given to him by Mary. Most importantly, Clark said he slept in the bedroom. Mary said he slept in the bedroom, and she slept on the Davenport. That's a sofa. The apartment had two rooms, and they slept apart that night. So Mary Branch couldn't give Clark an alibi past 1.30 in the morning because she wasn't even in the same room. James Weir went home after the show, so he couldn't alibi either one of them. To put a cap on this, I'm going to air out the failures of the detectives on some of the follow-up questions and just simple gumshoe detective work that should have been done. Where were the ticket stubs from the theater? How much were they? Where did they sit? Who was on stage? Did they get drinks? What did they have? Who was the cab driver? What taxi company was it? Does he remember that run from Gerard Street to the theater? Could he describe the passengers? Is there any record of that trip? How much did the taxi cost? 
Who saw them at the theater? Did the usher or ticket window clerk see them that night? What were they wearing? How crowded was the theater? What cabbie took them back home? Is there any record of that trip? You don't have to be a seasoned detective to see the problems here. These are logical follow-up questions that any investigator would have asked. Alibi defenses are used all the time. Is it really enough to say, I wasn't there, I was here, without anyone trying to disprove it? In this case, for these three, apparently it was. The notes in Sergeant Stuart Deal's report said that they thought William Clark could have been involved in this case. It actually said he could have been the finger man for this case, meaning the gunman, but they couldn't get anything to link him up. Why was that? Those simple questions and follow-ups could have either substantiated their trip to the Gaiety Theater or blown that story apart. That still wouldn't account for the hours between 1.30 and 7.30 in the morning since Clark and Mary Branch slept separately. And Clark said he didn't leave the apartment until 1.15 on Monday afternoon. How convenient. A little more digging into their alibi of one another could have shown that Branch couldn't alibi Clark and Weir couldn't alibi either one of them. But there were no follow-up questions, no repudiation of their claims, no confirmation of their attendance at the Gaiety Theater. Why were the leads on these three people dropped quicker than a flaming turd? In the years since the murders, William Clark, Mary Branch, and James Weir were never formally re-interviewed. The investigators had gone all the way to Philadelphia to chase down Tony the Stinger Cugino and Bill Cleary. They grilled Arthur Waugh and Harry Simon and followed up on Simon's alibi at the Baltimore Rooming House. They found out about Walter Oliver and his admission through Horace Davis, and they went all the way to Seat Pleasant to follow up on the 1933 robbery of the bootlegger just to verify that Horace Davis wasn't crazy. They did an 11-day stakeout on Lawrence Pettit and George Bruffy and their plans to knock off the main office barn in Georgetown. They intercepted mail from Robert Janney and linked Janney directly to William Clark and James Weir through Lillian, and nobody thought to just bring them back in for a subsequent statement and crush their alibi defense? What the hell made these three so special? What made their story so easily believed and not worthy of that kind of follow-up? Come on. And guess what? The roller coaster you're on hasn't even crested the first hill yet. I warned you, it's a long drop to the bottom. In December of 1934, about a month before the murders, William Clark was out of jail from the robbery accusation and back on Gerard Street with Mary Branch. Around Christmas, William Clark, Mary Branch, and James Weir took a trip across town. It wasn't for a holiday party. William Clark wanted to sell his Capital Transit Company uniform. You know, the same guy who said he wanted his job back right before the murders. The three of them went out Rhode Island Avenue, all the way to Edgewood. Clark picked up a good friend of his from the Jesse Theater at around 10 o'clock at night and took him to his house on Evart Street. His friend went inside and gave Clark the cash for his uniform. Who was this mystery friend who bought William Clark's Capital Transit uniform? It's a name you've heard several times before, and a man whose motives I've questioned from the very beginning. A man who said he slept through the entire murder. Francis Gregory. 
If you have information about the Car Barn Murders, go to the Shattered Souls Facebook page and leave me a message. Opening music by Sam Johnson at samjohnsonlive.com. Shattered Souls is produced by Karen Smith and Angel Heart Productions. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work.